Good morning, church family. It's so good to be with you again this morning. It's been quite a week. I was telling my wife early this week, only in Michigan on an 80-degree day does ice still fall from the heavens. Oh, that's okay. It's in liquid form now, so that's, that's okay. <laughs> but... uh. Let's have a word of prayer. This morning we're going to be taking a look at the great-great-grandson of King Solomon. And we're going to see some lessons that we can learn from him, particularly in two wars which he faced, which are recorded in Scripture. And we're going to do one thing that I love to do most in Scripture, and that's to try and put myself in the story and see what would I have done? What questions arise to me? Like, what details are coming out of the story that just make it come alive And hopefully it'll do that for you as well. And also, what lessons can we therefore draw to our own personal lives today in the time we find ourselves living in? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I come before you asking for your blessing once again to be with me and to be with everyone who is here at church this morning and everyone who may be watching online. May your word convict us, Lord. May it challenge us. May it bring back lessons which maybe are easy, but which we seem to easily forget at times as well. And uh, may we continue to grow each and every day more and more into your image. This is our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So to understand the story of King Jehoshaphat, which uh, we will be getting to. It's important for us to go through a little bit of the background. Where does the kingdom find itself? What is the situation in which King Jehoshaphat finds himself in? Now, King Solomon seems to be a good starting point. Uh, we could even go very quickly to his son, Rehoboam. What, what's the distinguishing mark that marks his reign? Solomon's son. So, increased taxes, okay, which, which ended up, I would say, yeah, even more than his father, But it ended up in what? A split, right, of the kingdom. So then it became the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. This is a stark contrast. But with that, not only did the territories divide, and this is an important aspect that we will see in the story, but there is also what happens to be a spiritual divide as well, which is much more subtle but begins to take place when Jeroboam, who takes the northern kingdom, remembers that, oh, the people go down to Jerusalem every year several times because they go there to worship as the book of the law, Moses' writings, instructs them to do. So what he does is he sets up his own altars, his own places of worship. Do the priests and Levites like that? Anyone remember? No, they don't. He says, well, if you won't serve me, then shoot, basically get out. He expels them from the land. They go back to Judah and to Jerusalem, where they can serve, and he sets up his own priests, which kind of makes sense, because when you look at idol worship in in a nutshell, it's very external, much more external. You would be tempted to think that's the same of of God in the Old Testament and through the sanctuary, because there are a lot of external things to do, Uh, but they are being done so that God could teach them that what he really wants is the heart, right? What God is ultimately interested in in us is our heart and minds. He's interested in the internal, not merely the external. He doesn't want us to come to church just so that we come to church. 
There's no merit in just coming to church. He wants us to come to church because we want to be here, because we want to praise him and thank him for the goodness. He wants the internal to be there, and the externals obviously come along with that. But it's a very great divide. I don't remember reading, not that my knowledge is extensive of idol worship by any means. Not sure if anyone's knowledge should be that extensive of idol worship, but from the little that I do know, it was very much external. You would do this, you would appease a God, you give a sacrifice, or you pay money to the priest or something, and it's all done and over with. And uh, you would then receive blessings from that God. It didn't depend what your attitude was. It didn't depend what your beliefs were. All that mattered was that you would make this kind of uh, spiritual restitution, if it were, or appeasement of this divine so-called being, which didn't exist. And that's all that was needed. So it would make sense to me then that anyone could be a priest for such an external part, right? But for God, because he was so interested in the internal, he wanted the priests and Levites to be instructors, to teach the people that it's not just about what you do, but it's about your attitudes, your feelings, your beliefs, your motivations for why you do the things that you do that are important. And that is not always an easy thing to teach because it's not always a favorable thing to hear if we're honest, right? When we're told that we are doing the wrong thing and that it's our attitude that needs to change. I know I didn't like that as a kid. And uh, I'm not looking forward to the times where I'm going to have to teach those. I'm looking forward to them, but I know it's not going to go as smoothly. Hopefully it'll go smoother than I was. <laughs> That's my prayer, everyone's prayer as a, as a parent, I'm sure. So Rehoboam keeps Jerusalem. Jeroboam takes the northern tribes. Now, Abijah who is Rehoboam's son, takes over after him. And what's interesting about Abijah and also his son Asa, so this would be the grandchild and great-grandchild, is they both have these kind of skirmishes. So not only with this divide in territories did Israel was it just over taxes, but after a while it kind of gets to be a territorial war. Now, all of a sudden, Israel, which was a united nation under David and under Solomon, which gained renown worldwide, at least of the then-known world, uh, but now, all of a sudden, they're fighting each other, right? Jeroboam isn't satisfied with just having the northern kingdoms, and Rehoboam doesn't want to just settle down with just having Judah. He wants to take as much as he can, and so they have these, I don't know if we'd call them skirmishes, they were kind of like full-on wars where soldiers came, hundreds of thousands arrayed themselves against each other fought against each other. And so what happens here is that Abijah has this moment where he gives a stirring speech in chapter 13 to Jeroboam and says, the Lord gave you the northern tribe, but you have no right to come here over into Judah and take the territory. Of course, the number of soldiers which Jeroboam had was twice as many as what Abijah had. And in the middle uh, of the conflict, or I should say, as the conflict was about started, Jeroboam was very crafty and he split up his army and he ambushed them so that the army came from both sides of them. And all of a sudden, Judah realizes, hey, we've got just as many soldiers in front of us as we have behind us. We are doomed. And what do they do? Does anyone remember? They, what do you do when you're in a situation where you know there's no way you can win? You cry out to the Lord, right? 
This is the, the plea of, of the, the Old Testament mantra. Whenever someone is in a difficult spot, they see no way out. They cry out to the Lord, and the Lord delivers them. He strikes Jeroboam and his army, and it's actually Judah who ends up pursuing them. And they take some of the cities, especially up in the north, which, the northern, which northern Israel had. They start taking some of the cities of, of Ephraim and some of the other uh, uh, tribes there, which helped increase the, the border boundaries of Judah. King Asa uh, takes the throne after Abijah, and I believe it was the Ethiopians who come to attack him with an army of, of a million, uh, quite a large army. And of course, Asa does the same thing. He cries out to the Lord. The reason I'm going through this is because this is going to become a very important uh, key or, or context with which we find King Jehoshaphat in. Remember, no one is a product in a vacuum. Everyone is a product of their time, their history. Do you not think that King Jehoshaphat knew these stories, was taught by his father and grandfather that these things happened to them and that they would always be able to, that he would always be able to call on the Lord and that he should be faithful to the Lord and that he would deliver him in times of trouble? Wonderful, wonderful lessons. Sometimes which he forgot, other times which he remembered. And that's what we're going to take a look at. So Asa, all these kings are now, another thing that's characteristic of the kings of this time, particularly Abijah and Asa, is that you start hearing about uh, them having to destroy the high places and the, the Ashtoreth and all these different things which are set up around the land of Israel and the land of Judah. And the reason for that being is because Jero, Jeroboam instituted these false practices of worship. And this was something which Israel always faced throughout history. You find them going back to idol worship, then they return and be faithful to God. Then they go back to idol worship. It goes, and particularly around the borders of a country where you have such heavy pagan influences on the outside of the country, they're like, oh, what are they doing for worship? Well, that looks really exciting. Let's try that and see what it works. And slowly, the religious battle, even though the territory may be secure, the religious battle creeps closer and closer and closer. Now, Israel, because of the false worship after the split, goes on a downhill spiral very, very, very quickly. And these kings from Judah, particularly with the priests and Levites, are trying to fight not only the territorial battle and keep their kingdom defended, but also the spiritual battle. And so they are destroying these high places uh, as they go through. And uh, we find that King Asa does this, as well as King uh, Abijah uh, doing this, and it seems like it's a constant battle. Every good king that comes to the throne, as we continue reading in Chronicles, or, or you can even read the same in, in Kings as well, you will find the same notion that they're constantly destroying the high places. When I was a kid, I'm like, how long does it take him to finally just get rid of them? You know, like, but the thing is, the next king would be wicked and he would set up the same places or, or, or different places where they were destroyed. And then the next king, if he was faithful, would go and destroy all those places. And it's not like, you know, today where we have satellite images and stuff and you can say, oh, I know exactly where they are. Some of this worship was done in secret. And so unless you were a worshiper, you wouldn't know exactly where this high place was. So as you would find out, oh, they're going to this mount to worship, let's go up there and let's destroy their place of worship, and so on and so forth. And this is what's happening uh, through this background. Of course, they all pass away, and finally King Jehoshaphat is now placed as king in Judah. And let's begin from chapter 17 of Second Chronicles and start to read the story here. It says, Then Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place and strengthened himself against whom? Israel. Okay, that's an important thing. Keep that in the back of your mind. 
Jehoshaphat is strengthening himself against Israel. Yeah, this is his family. I mean, this is since the split. This has only been two or three generations if we count from Solomon, you know, but he passed Rehoboam. Okay, so, so three kings ago, this split happened. Now, those who were friends, you would be able to travel freely. Now we go to war against them. So now I have to strengthen myself against the city. There's, there's very against this, this place. It's not only important that he's strengthening himself against Israel, but as you will see, he places troops going from verse 2 in the fortified cities of Judah. He sets garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim, which Asa, his father, had taken. So as they pushed Jeroboam back, they gained a bit of territory into Israel's territory, and now it's time to strengthen those cities. So they would build these fortified cities. They would put some weapons in there. They would put food so that as the soldiers came there during time of war, they would have places to stay and they wouldn't have to be out in the open and make themselves vulnerable to attack. And so this is something that uh, is mentioned there. And then also it it reads in verse 3 that uh, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the former ways of his father David and he did not seek the the Baals or Baals. But he sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments, not according to the acts of Israel. And so he receives riches and honor. I'm going to kind of paraphrase the rest of the chapter here. He delighted in doing the ways of the Lord. Again, he removed the high places, the wooden images, which he found in the land. And then it's a very interesting thing that we find that King Jehoshaphat is doing. This is something which, at least for the first time, I remember reading since the kingdom has split up. And that is that in the third year, starting from verse 7 of his reign, he sends his leaders. I'm not going to read all the names there. But he sends the leaders of Judah to, what does the last part of the verse there say? To do what? Teach in the cities of Judah. And with them, verse 8, he sent the Levites, and he lists the names there, And then he lists also two of them who were priests. Now, just so that we're not confused, I know this is a refresher, but all the priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. You understand the difference? Some The priests were those who ministered in the sanctuary, who offered the sacrifice, who went in. The high priest was chief. He was the one who went to the most holy place once. But there were many Levites. Some Levites did the music and the worship. Some Levites took care of the temple and, and made sure that everything was running smoothly. And if it needed some repairs, you needed the oil, you needed, they made sure that everything was managed well. So there was a whole system of Levites that helped everything move, not just the priests who actually ministered. And so he's sending all of these Levites, the priests, and he's sending the leaders who are his confidants and his counselors out to teach the people, to teach them about what do you think? How much taxes they should be paying to the king, how wealthy they should be. He sends them out to teach them about God and about true worship. It's important. Why? Because... As we look at the reforms which, which Jehoshaphat is doing, the reforms which King Asa are doing, Jehoshaphat is no, noticing something that his father and grandfather didn't notice, and that's that you can't just destroy the high places. You have to also instruct the people in true worship. You don't just remove that which is a stumbling block. You have to put in its place that which is true and holy and good to make sure that the energy and attention and devotion is dedicated to the right place. And this is something which Jehoshaphat, particularly in that northern area, which has been heavily influenced by under Jeroboam's reign, 
uh, with idol worship. He's making sure, let me reacquaint you with the God of your fathers. It's, a, it's this God, like you are our brothers and sisters. Let me share with you what he did. And they went out, it says that they had the book of the law with them. They went and they taught, uh, verse 9 tells us that, throughout all the cities of Judah. You know, another thing that comes to my mind as I read this also is uh, I often hear from non-Adventist Christians, New Testament Christians as it were, that evangelism didn't really exist in the Old Testament as we see evangelism today like the gospel. And when I read this story, I think, oh, really? Like, what would you call this if not a prophecy seminar to reacquaint those who have been in idol worship for many years, who have forgotten what true worship was like, to come back, those who had backslidden, if we were to say, and to reach out to them. For some of them who were young and born, this may have been the first time they were hearing about the God of their fathers and to bring them back to what true worship was like. Now, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat, and I believe the Lord really approved of Jehoshaphat's methods because as we'll see in an upcoming conflict, it ends up being quite prosperous what King Jehoshaphat is doing here. His evangelism works. And not only through the context of doing all of this, uh, verse 10 also strikes me. It says, The fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms of the land that were round about Judah, so that they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. Also, some of the Philistines brought Jehoshaphat presents of silver as tribute, and the Arabians brought him flocks, 7,700 rams, 7,700 male goats. And Jehoshaphat became increasingly powerful, and he built fortresses and storage cities in Judah. He had much property in the cities of, Ju of Judah, and mighty men of war. And the rest of the chapter essentially details how vast his army was, those who were his generals, as it were, in his army. And then it ends by saying, and he had even more than this, you know, in the fortified city. But this is what was quantified, as it were, in Scripture. And so we see here that not only Jehoshaphat's faithfulness is giving him victory in the war against uh, uh, Jeroboam, which his father had, but he's evangelizing. He's trying to teach them about the God of their fathers, restore true worship. He's destroying uh, pagan worship and idol worship. And God is blessing him so much that the nations around are afraid and they're bringing tribute. Like he hasn't gone to war against the Philistines. You, you know what's saying there. When someone gives you tribute ahead of time, it means they're afraid that you are going to invade and they're giving it to you to say, listen, we give this to you beforehand. Just don't come in and invade us, okay? We know, we can see the Lord is with you. This is such an interesting point when I read in the Old Testament, particularly in this story, because I wonder, and I would have to do a more extensive study on this, but I wonder if the pagan nations, as it were, around Israel and around Judah, because the stories that we read in Scripture, do you think they were unaware of them? Do you think the Ethiopians, when they fled against King Asa, an army of one million do you think when they went back to Ethiopia, they just said, oh, everything was grand? Or do you think they kind of went down with their, with their heads down? We lost, and many of our brothers had fallen in the war. This is what happened when Jeroboam went against uh, Abijah. Uh, I think it was 500,000 of them fell that day. They know these stories. Now, what I'm wondering is, are these kingdoms more aware and more keenly watching Judah and Israel to see if they're faithful to God so that when they aren't faithful to God, they know they can come in and invade? 
I wonder if that's the case. I would need to do more of that. But it seems, at least from this story, in a, in a very small way, that they see they're being very faithful to God and they understand enough about God, not enough that they want to worship Him. Such a shame, right? Not enough that they want to give their hearts over to Him, that they want to worship Him. But enough to know, let's be nice to them now because they're being very faithful and we don't want God to strike us down. And their God is the true God. But as soon as they're unfaithful, we know that's our opportunity to strike. And you find this happening over and over again in the Old Testament. Anyway, that's the, a side note as we're going through. And then we come to chapter 18, which was our scripture reading for this morning. And the first verse just makes my ears perk up. And it's like, Jehoshaphat had riches and honor in abundance. And by marriage, he allied himself with Ahab. Who's Ahab? King of Israel, king of the north. Wait a second, what did we read in just chapter 17, verse 1? Who was, who was King Jehoshaphat strengthening himself against? Israel. What? Why? I, hopefully I'm not the only one asking this question as I read this. Like One chapter later, he has riches and honors in abundance. And I'm wondering, is it a political move? Like Maybe if we get married, we don't have to worry about the skirmishes so much anymore. Maybe that had partly to do with it. What we are told is that he didn't consult God whether this would be the right move or not. But somehow, maybe in all of his riches and honor, he forgets to ask the Lord for counsel and wisdom because he thinks he has need of nothing. Uh, A New Testament passage there that I'm referring to. And so he aligns himself with King Ahab. And after some years, he went down to visit Ahab in Samaria. And Ahab makes a party for him. He kills the oxen, he kills the sheep, he feeds him well, and he feeds all of his entourage well who traveled with him. And then he asks him the question, will you go up with me to Ramoth Ramoth Gilead? And King Jehoshaphat, again, because he's well fed and he feels that he has need of nothing, gives his word and says, my people are as your people, We will be with you in the Lord. And it seems as though as soon as he said that, he remembered, oh, but I really should ask God as well, right? He forgets this at the beginning. And so he also says there in verse 4, please inquire of the word of the Lord today. And so the king of Israel, King Ahab, gathers the prophets together. How many? 400. 400. Do you really need 400? I mean, I'm putting myself in the story. When I hear 400 prophets, I'm thinking like, how many of us are here today? Maybe 100? Can you imagine like village, every seat packed in and everyone is saying the same thing. And what are they saying? Go up against Ramoth Gilead. The Lord, God will deliver it into your hands. In fact, at the beginning, they say God will give it into your hands. They use the generic term for God, Elohim. And I wonder, this, is, this next part comes to me most strikingly. So they ask, they say, yes, go up. The God will deliver it into the king's head. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not still a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? So I have, I have several questions. One is, what about 400 people left him unconvinced? You know, if you hear 400 people saying the same thing, you kind of think, especially if they're called prophets, that, you know, they have something to it. Surely God isn't lying through 400 people. But evidently something else must have caught his eye. How? The question I have is this. 
How did King Jehoshaphat know that out of the 400 people before him, none of them, none of them was an actual prophet of the Lord? Was it the way they dressed? Maybe, possibly, could be. Was it the way they talked? Maybe. Was it their mannerisms, their behavior? You know, I, I think of, uh, when I look at this text, let's go to 2 Kings, 2 Kings verse one, uh, chapter 1. 2 Kings chapter 1, very interesting story. 2 Kings chapter 1, and of course, this is the son now of Ahab, who dies in battle. Very shortly, we're going to read that story. In fact, this is the story. So this is around the same, this, this is around the same time. But we see from, uh, uh, so Ahab dies in battle. Ahaziah is his son, who uh, is king, takes over at that time. And we're going to read verse 1 8. So he gets sick. He falls through a lattice. He gets injured. Sorry, not sick. And he's suffering. And now he's going to go and inquire of Baalzebub of Ekron. So he's going there to see what is my fate? Am I going to get well? Am I going to die? What's happening? And on the way, uh, who meets him? Elijah meets him and tells the, this messenger who's going to inquire of the God of Ekron, uh, you don't need to go to the God of Ekron. There's a God here in Israel and go tell the king he's not going to recover. And the man returns and says, you know, I met a man. I don't know who he was, but this is what he told me. He seemed to be a prophet of the Lord. and This is what I told him. And what does the king ask him to do? He says, verse seven there of chapter one. Then he said to them, what kind of man was it who came up to meet you and who told you these words? And verse 8, so they answered him, a hairy man weathering, uh, wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. He never met him. He hears two things. He's hairy. He wears a leather belt. This is his message for you. I, know he, I, don't, I don't just know he's a prophet of the Lord. I know which prophet of the Lord he is. And you, he knows this by the plain speaking of the prophet, by the way the prophet dressed no show, no fee to, to inquire of who the Lord was or what he has to say. That's something else which, which greatly distinguished the prophets of the Lord from the prophets of all these uh, pagan uh, religions. You, you virtually never, uh, I'm trying to remember if there was ever one time, I know Naaman tried to pay Elisha for the healing and Elisha said, no, 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 our, our God is not like these, these pagan gods. You don't pay him for his services. He wants your heart. That is what we give and what we owe to God, not our money. So, anyway, evidently, whatever it was, King Jehoshaphat is unconvinced with 400 prophets saying exactly the same thing. So he asks King Ahab, like, do you have at least one prophet of the Lord who can, who can speak on behalf of, of God? And sure enough, King Ahab, he knows of someone. He's kind of like reluctant to say who it is. But he's just saying, okay, there is Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. I love the, the, the extremes of, the, of the, the negative, how much he really doesn't like this prophet. Not only does he say he never says anything good, but he says also it's always evil, right? He's repeating it twice on both extremes, right? The negative and the positive. It's always bad. It's never good. I mean, he's being very clear. 
And Jehoshaphat hears him speak this way about a prophet of the Lord, as if Jehoshaphat somehow should be, you know, kind of like, oh, I didn't know you speak that way. He says, the king shouldn't say such things. Really? You gave your son to marry this man's daughter. Like, you should have done a bit of research before and not just gone into things without asking of the Lord, without consulting. Anyway, the king of Israel, Ahab, he submits and he said, bring Micaiah, the son of Imla, quickly and just to paraphrase, paraphrase, we did a read this story already. Uh, during the time they're going to get him, we find this story of Zedekiah who builds these iron horns and says, go, you're going to gore. This is how you're going to gore um, the Syrians until they're destroyed. And it's like, these 400 prophets are still going at it. They're not stopping. They're just saying, you're going to be successful. You're going to be successful. Go up, go up, go up. While they're waiting there by the city gate, they're at the threshing floor. And then Micaiah comes, and the messenger even is going. You wonder what the king said to this messenger. Even he, when he says, hey, the king has need of you, says, listen, 400 people are all saying the same thing. Please, when you come, don't do what you usually do. I'm paraphrasing here, but that's essentially what he's saying. Not using those words, of course. But speak encouragement. And Micaiah says, as the Lord lives, whatever my God says, that I will speak. So he comes and... He said, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? And he said, go and prosper and they shall be delivered into your hand. I wonder how he said it. I wish we had like either an audio recording or a video, right? What about the way in which he said it left King Ahab unconvinced? I mean, I'm not sure whether to think that King Ahab's jaw dropped when he heard him say what he wanted to hear, which was, let's go up to war, which is why he probably paid the 400 prophets to say what they did. But he's there, and all of a sudden, you know what he's expecting. He's expecting to say, no, don't go up. You're going to die. But instead, he sees, yeah, go up. I could just imagine, like, for the first time, this, this, this never good, always evil, like, I'm sorry, can you say that again? I'm not sure I heard you. I thought you told me, yes, we can go up. But evidently, I'm not sure if the way he said it was a bit sarcastic. Was it the tone of his voice? Was it kind of like, yeah, 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 go up. You know, God will give give it to your hand. Like, evidently, you don't really want to know what God has to say. You just want an excuse to go and do what you want to do. That's an interesting insight which the prophet here, uh, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, gives us. Essentially, he's saying, if you're that set on doing something, and note this, because this has... This has implications for us today. If you're that set on doing something, don't give the pretense or don't give the, the, the visual outward display as though somehow you're seeking God's will when ultimately you don't really want it. You want to do your own thing. Go and do it. God respects you enough to give you the freedom to do what you want to do. You will have to bear the consequences for it. But if you want to go up, go up. Now, he didn't say this, but this is in his tone. And evidently, King Ahab knew that this was, that he was either scoffing at him or making light of the situation. And so he says, how many times do I have to make you swear that you're telling me the truth, that it's actually what God is saying? And this time he says, okay, if you really want to know, what does God say? I saw Israel scattered like sheep uh, on the mountains with, with as sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master, let each return to his house in peace. And the king of Israel, this is his moment now, turns to Jehoshaphat and says, see, I was right. I told you, always evil, never good. Always, always. Maybe he took took some pride in the fact that he knew uh, the prophet of the Lord. Now, 
I'm wondering also from King Jehoshaphat's perspective, okay, you've aligned yourself with him. Now you hear God doesn't want you to go there, but you're hearing how the, how the, the king is speaking of a prophet, firstly, of the Lord. He doesn't like what he has to say. And if the king himself is telling you that the prophet of the Lord is always saying evil and never good, doesn't this give you an indication like, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be having dealings with you. You know, if, if you're in a, in a business partnership with someone and a prophet of the Lord came to you and said, whatever this person does, it's always evil and it's never good. Does that sound like someone you want to go into business with or sound like someone you want to stay away from? You follow what I'm saying? Like, how many cues does God have to give King Jehoshaphat to know he shouldn't be doing this? It gets worse. It gets, I don't know what King Jehoshaphat missed here, but Anyway, uh, he goes into this dialogue, and, and I believe that it's more an allegory of kind of saying what's going up in heaven. Part of that is because I don't believe that God has, uh, particularly within the great controversy, God does not stoop to the same uh, intricacies which Satan will. God does not lie, okay? The New Testament tells us that he is without lie. God does not lie. God does not tempt anyone, but everyone is led uh, by their own devices. And so what, what picture here Micaiah is displaying is that in heaven God is having this council meeting and he's essentially saying that if you're so bent on going to this war, I will leave you to do what your heart desires. I will abandon you. I won't put the truth in the mouth of those prophets. I'll let them out of the lies which you already want to hear and they will bring you to your own destruction. That's my paraphrase of that part. And, uh, of course, he gets struck on the cheek for saying that. And uh, then it says, okay, the king sends, King Ahab sends Micaiah away, and he sends him into the prison house in Israel. And he says, feed him the bread of affliction, and, uh, you know, he will stay there until I return in peace. And Micaiah is very quick to say, listen, if you return in peace, then the Lord hasn't spoken through me. I'm telling you what God said. You do with it what you will. So then we have this this extra element in the story, which again makes me think whether Ahab openly said, yeah, 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 that's not going to happen. You know, he's, he's not really looking for God's word. He doesn't want God to be part of his life. He wants to do what he wants to do. He, he's married to Queen Jezebel, and, and both of them have this kind of attitude that you more or less get what you want. You don't have to seek the Lord. But you find Ahab doing something interesting in this conflict right he starts to i almost wonder if in the back of his mind he doesn't like what the prophet has to says say but he wonders well every other time i've sought him and he says evil it does come to pass right that that's how he knows that he only does it only prophesies evil against him and never good because he must have consulted him a few times and all those times he told him not to do and he must have been proven right so in the back of his mind, he's thinking, yeah, maybe it is true. So what does he do? As he's going up to battle, he tells King Jehoshaphat, wouldn't you love to be King Jehoshaphat at this, at this point in time? You wear your kingly armor and robes and everything. Stand out, you know, like, like, a, like a sore thumb so that as the armies come, they look for you first. Wouldn't you love to have that, that position? But me, I'm going to disguise myself. <laughs> tricky, tricky. More like I don't want to get killed. Um, in this battle, and, and let's go out to battle. And Jehoshaphat still says yes. I mean, I just, I really don't understand. As I read the spirit of prophecy on this, what she describes is that 
King Jehoshaphat gave his word early on saying, we will join you in the fight when he was well fed, when he wasn't thinking about the Lord in all his prosperity and richness and honor, when the countries around his empire were paying him tribute and he thought he had need of nothing, he forgot the Lord. And he went out ahead of the Lord and he gave his word and he was reluctant to take back his word. Why not say, well, if the Lord says not to go, I'm not going with you. I'm sorry, I'd like to help you, but not. It would have been better to do that than to go into this battle. But praise God for his patience and his mercy, even in our own lives. So we find that uh, Syria gives orders and says, don't, don't fight with just the common person. Like You'll have to fight with common people, but push through the battle. What we want to do is we want to strike down the king of Israel. So as soon as you find him, put heavy war against him there and strike him down and then we'll withdraw. Kind of like the, the, the adage, right? You, you want to cut off the head of the snake, right? That'll kill the rest of the snake. So the king is kind of the leader. You kill them, they'll be without a leader and it'll be much easier to conquer them after that. And so this is what they set out to do. And because Jehoshaphat was the one wearing the target on his back by the way he was dressed... They pursue Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat sees, uh, he says, that uh, they were commanded. So Jehoshaphat said, uh, th they said, it's the king of Israel. I'm reading from verse 31. Therefore they surrounded him to attack, but Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord, what? Helped him. And God diverted them from him, for it was so when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. So Somehow they must have recognized, oh, this is not the king of Israel. We don't want to make war with him. But then where is he? And the Lord saved him despite all the signs that he had not to go into the war. And besides the fact that he was wearing a target on his back when he did go into war, God was still merciful to him. And he, uh, so then we have this random arrow that is uh, pulled back and gets King Ahab between the joints of his armor and he goes up. He doesn't cry out to the Lord. Notice, notice the difference there. Jehoshaphat finds himself in trouble and he cries out to the Lord. He's delivered. King Ahab finds himself in trouble and all he does is retreat and look on the battle. And by sunset, he dies. Was God not able to deliver King Ahab? He is able, but King Ahab never asked for it. It wasn't on his mind. As I said, his, his heart was set on having the war, regardless of the cost, and it actually cost him his life. So then Jehoshaphat uh, returns, and Jehu, uh, the seer, went, went out to meet him and says, Should you be helping the wicked and love those that hate the Lord? Therefore the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Nevertheless, good things are found in you, that you have removed the wooden images from the land and have prepared your heart to seek God. This is an important point there. He is preparing. So the rest of chapter 19 there, just to summarize before we get to the second battle here. I can't believe that's the time. Is that seriously the time? I'm going to have to. This is going to be so fast. Okay. He basically does more evangelism and he sets judges in the land and he commissions these judges to be faithful to God. So now we get to the second war. And what a stark difference we find to the first war. For the first thing, does... Does Jehoshaphat go alone and make a pact with anyone before seeking the Lord in this war? No. Now Moab and the Ammonites, they're gathering again to, to, on the other side of the sea. They're coming to him. And the first thing he does is 
Not only does he go to seek the Lord, but he pronounces to the entire land, let's seek God together. There's power in numbers, and he doesn't want it just to be his story to tell. Now it's going to become a story for the collective nation to experience and tell. He sends out the proclamation, there's a fast. And notice it says that all of Judah gathered together to inquire of the Lord from all the cities they came. Verse 13 tells us Judah came with their little ones. The wives and children came too. And I have no doubt that some of them fasted as well. Maybe the children's fasted in a smaller capacity. If they're old enough, maybe they did fast and go without a meal or without food for a day or something like that. Because when your very life is threatened, you do unusual things. And they are justified at those times. And so we have that beautiful prayer which King Jehoshaphat gives. I love the way it ends. We don't even know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And this is particularly interesting to me because everything we've read about him beforehand, with all the riches and honor that he received, what is one thing we read over and over again about what King Jehoshaphat did? From the very beginning, when he began to rule, he did what? He fortified the cities right? He set up garrisons. He's protecting the borders of his country, particularly against Israel, but all over. And a lot of the, the money that he's receiving in, he's investing in, in building up the defenses. And yet at a time of crisis, he says, we don't know what to do. He's done his part, but he's saying, Lord, without you, it doesn't matter how many cities we have, how fortified we are, how many weapons we have, how many people we have, how good we are in battle. None of that matters. What matters is, are you with us or not? And if you're not with us, then maybe we should surrender. And if you are with us, then we have nothing to fear. And because of time, I'm going to just, you know how the story ends. They go out singing. They go out praising. God says, the battle will be mine. You won't even have to lift a finger. What a stark difference to the first war, right? Where he goes ahead of God, he doesn't consult God, he gets multiple evidences that God does not want him to do this, and yet he still goes through with it. And Israel ends up returning for three days, they're going back and forth, carrying treasures, and they didn't have to fight, they didn't do anything except that they sung, they prayed, and they fasted. They wanted God's will to be done. Now the question I have, how to make that practical for us today, is this. The two wars that we see Jehoshaphat in are the same two wars you and I potentially face each and every day, right? We're not out there fighting against literal armies, but we have the war of, am I going to do my own thing? Or am I going to trust in the Lord and seek his ways? Am I going to go ahead of the Lord or am I going to wait to hear his will and then follow? And this comes to us, to each one of us in different ways because we all struggle with different things and God has a different plan for each and every one of us. So one direction which he, may be call, which he may be asking one of us to follow may not necessarily be the direction he wants us all to follow. Maybe that's just unique for that person. And that person needs to make the choice to be faithful to the Lord, just like I myself need to make the decision every day to be faithful to the Lord. The tale of two wars is our tale. And we can decide what kind of ending we want as well. Do we want to have the ending of Ahab? where death awaits us, where we are scattered like sheep, where there are no blessings, or do we want to have the ending which Jehoshaphat had when he actually trusted in the Lord and said, I will praise him and I will gain all this victory and all this treasure which enriched his kingdom again and I will do as the Lord desires. This is the question which each and every one of us have today. We will not have the concluding song. I apologize for that. I did not see the clock at all. 
So let's bow our heads for a word of prayer and then uh, the organ will play our postlude as we get ready to transition uh, for Sabbath school. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful story which is recorded in Scripture and for the blessings that it gives to us that even though we are not in the same time as King Jehoshaphat was, we very much have some of the same spiritual battles to face, some of the same lessons to learn, that trusting in you is really the only way to go. Father, forgive us for the times where we have gone ahead or where we have pursued things that we want so badly that we are not even asking ourselves, what is your will for our lives? Father, help us to constantly have that mindset to seek your will and not our will, to to constantly be seeking what more we can do for you in your kingdom, whether you want us to be evangelists, whether we can share your message, teach us the right words to say, Lord, or whether you want us to remove certain things from our life and replace them with better ones. Please teach and instruct each and every one of us, and may our lives truly be an honor to who you are and what you're able to do, and may many, while there is still time left, And before you return, choose to give their hearts to you and have the same experience which King Jehoshaphat had the second time round. We want that experience, Lord, and we know that you are coming to reward those who are faithful to you. Please help nothing in this world to distract us or to tempt us to give up that prize. For we do love you, Lord, and pray that you would help us to be more faithful. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We'll transition now to Sabbath school. If you're going to stay for Sabbath school here, 